This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. The same religion that's capable of hideous acts of destruction can also be capable of moments of healing, of restoration, and of hope. But educate a girl, and you educate her entire family. There is a son within every person. When that anger sets in, write it. Write the letters, but don't send them. You never want to leave concrete proof of insanity. very much. Uh, uh, there's, this is a couple firsts. It's the first time I've used a Mac on a presentation. I've just transitioned from a Mac, as well as transitioning jobs, transitioning all sorts of things. The clock has started on this thing, but never mind that. Uh, the other thing is um, it's the first time in about four years I gave a talk without a suit. <laughs> <laughs> So there are a couple of firsts. All right, so let me just launch into this. Um, it's uh, How Discovery, Invention, Innovation, and Energy Changed the World, but it's also subtitled Dr. Chu Goes to Washington. Uh, now, for those of you who don't know, I, the younger people might not have seen this movie, but it's certainly worth seeing. Uh, it's one of uh, Jimmy Stewart's uh, great movies, not nearly as good as Harvey, but uh, <laughs> it's up there. And... Um, it talks about a young, idealistic person who goes to Washington, D.C. as a senator, and uh, his name is Jefferson Smith, and, and how does he become a senator? Well, I've got to give you a little bit of background. Uh, uh, the senior senator of a western state dies, and the governor's got to appoint someone. So there are two camps. One camp says, appoint uh, a political stooge, so that they'll listen to what we want to do, and you know that'll be good. Another camp uh, driven by popular committees saying, no, 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 this is your chance to really reform D.C., our chance to really give uh, a clean new voice for the state. And uh, so the government's on the side, so it does what naturally comes. The way we do all things in Washington, we flip a coin. Just joking. <laughs> the coin lands on a newspaper edge and then flops over on a picture of Mr. Smith, who's head of the Boy Rangers, sort of like a Boy Scouts thing. And he's an innocent person, regarded as a bumpkin. So the governor says, this is perfect. He's innocent, he's wholesome. But he's so innocent, he'll be easy to manipulate. Now you might ask the question, how was I chosen? (laughs) (laughs) And the honest answer is, uh, I have no idea. Uh, But to political insiders, I must have looked like a bumpkin. So um, so the next, uh, this is going to set a scene for uh, uh, near the end of the movie. Uh, There's uh, Senator Smith who's taken under the wing by uh, Senator Joseph Payne, uh, the other senator in this western state, who was his father's best friend. But he learns later and later that the, uh, Senator Payne has gone astray, and he now gives a memorable speech. And we'll see how this works. This is another experiment uh, and how we can embed a movie. I guess this is just another lost cause, Mr. Payne. you people 
people don't know about lost causes. Mr. Payne does. He said once they were the only causes worth fighting for. And he fought for them once. For the only reason any man ever fights for them. Because of just one plain, simple rule. Love thy neighbor. And in the... Okay. So just remember that. Now, um, <laughs> love thy neighbor. Uh, so why did I go to Washington? Well, fundamentally, it's because I really believe that science and technology could profoundly change the world, but sometimes you need some policy nudges as well. So, so I marched off very innocently. And, but let me tell you, uh, give you a little history of why I thought that science and technology could really fundamentally change the world. I'm going to give you a few historical examples. And so I'm going to start with an innovation in agriculture. In um, flashback uh, a century, and in 1898, Sir William Crookes, who was inventor of the Crookes tube, it's uh, the precursor to, uh, well, it was the first electron tube, really, as shown below. He gets uh, to be president of the British Association for the Advancement of Science. He gives an inaugural speech. His inaugural speech doesn't say blah, 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 blah. He wants to be different. And so instead he says, England and all civilized countries are in deadly peril. So that woke up the audience. And he described, he described the, the problem. And the problem was the soils of England and the soils of Europe were becoming undernourished. Rotating crops, manure, weren't really doing the job the way it was done in those days. And so they started to use fertilizer. They started with bird guano. That's, you know, never mind. If you know what bird guano is, you know what bird guano is. <laughs> and uh, that was depleted. But then they found a perfect fertilizer source is uh, saltpeter, Chilean saltpeter. And so we're importing massive amounts of it to Europe. And then he did a little calculation. Oh, based on the growth of population, based on this, it's going to run out in 20 or 30 years, and tens of millions or more will starve to death. So he said, he left the little ray of hope, he said, it is the chemist who must come to the rescue before we're in the actual grip of actual death. The chemist will step in and postpone the day of famine. That speech set off a little scientific race. And four Nobel, to-be Nobel laureates in chemistry started racing to figure out how to make artificial fertilizer. And the first step was, how do you make ammonia? Starting with air, but maybe other feedstocks. So, in the end, um, Fritz Haber succeeded. He was awarded the Nobel Prize in 1918 for his discovery of how to fix nitrogen, turn it into ammonia, which then led to fertilizer. But he collaborated with someone else, a name like Carl Bosch. And this was deemed so important, a discovery by the Nobel Prize Committee in Chemistry, that in 1931, they gave a second Nobel Prize for the same piece of work. They labeled it something different, high temperature, high pressure catalysis, but it was the same work because they were collaborating together. Now it turned out that uh, Gerhard Ertl got a Nobel Prize for his surface work in 2007. In the citation, the Nobel Committee said, and at last we began to scientifically understand the Haber-Bosch process. Two and a half Nobel Prizes for inventing the way to make fertilizer because it was deemed that important. How important is that important? Well, at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, about 700 million people, the population more than doubled, and they could feed Europe. 
Then along comes that, uh, now we fast forward to the 60s. Professor at Stanford, Paul Ehrlich, wrote a bestseller called The Population Bomb. And he said, the battle to feed all humanity is over. In the 1970s and the 1980s, hundreds of millions of people will starve to death in spite of any crash programs embarked upon now. Hundreds of millions of people. Now, what happened? Well, two years later, a fellow by the name of Norman Borlaug gets awarded a Nobel Prize, not in chemistry, but in peace, for developing hybrid strains of wheat that could withstand sun doses of artificial fertilizer that would grow much fatter, bigger kernels. And they were so fat and big, he had to breed the, the wheat. So they were dwarf strains of reeds, so they would lower to the ground with stiffer stalks so they just wouldn't fall over from the heavy grain. And um, so what happened to this? This is a picture of the world production of grain. This is wheat starting with wheat, then going to corn, uh, led by the United States, going to other rice and other things. And the blue and red is the grain production in the world from 1960 to 2005. And the lower, I don't know what color that is. It's black and some other funny color. Uh, it's uh, the amount of land put under production. The population went from 3 billion to 6.5 billion. The amount of land put under production was the same, and the hundreds of millions of people did not starve to death. That was technology that came to the rescue yet again. Now we have another problem, and we'll get to that maybe in the question and answer period, but this is an example. Here's another example of how technology really reshaped the world. It was the invention of the steam engine and the improvement of the steam engine by James Watt. He didn't invent it, he actually made it practical. And uh, when James Watt invented the practical steam engine, there was a rapid transition from effectively human and animal power and horsepower to horsepower. And, and uh, here you have a, a lovely picture of this transition from horse-drawn carriages to iron horse carriages. So that's an example of something that really transformed the world. This is one of my favorite pictures by Turner. It shows a steam tugboat towing uh, an iconic warship, a sailing ship, in Great Britain to its final birth where it would be broken up for scrap and a setting sun of a different time. And so again, noting, Turner noting the transition from sailing vessels to steam vessels, and again, remarkably changing history. Now, let me tell you a little bit about other things that change history, and sometimes people change history and they succeed, but it doesn't look like they've succeeded for a while. And this is a very, a 30-second story of Alexander Graham Bell, just in case you're wondering which one Alexander Graham Bell is, it's the one with the beard. And um, um, so he invents the telephone, gets the patent, uh, and wait a minute. Yes. So, and he tries to sell the patent, get a bigger company to buy the rights and use it. And uh, many people were not impressed. The, for example, the chief engineer of the British Post Office was very much not impressed. And he said, the Americans have need of the telephone, but we do not. We have plenty of messenger boys. <laughs> All right. So let's fast forward. He, he starts a phone company. He has a vision of transcontinental phone lines, universal service, all these wonderful things. But when you have, want to send signals from, let's say, the West Coast to the East Coast, you need 
electrical amplifiers. And the electrical amplifiers they had in those days were not doing the job. So he says, I need something else. And so the early precursor to before Bell Labs was Bell Labs, they realized an essential component of the transcontinental phone line was the vacuum tube. Now, for those of you under 40, you don't know what a vacuum tube looks like. That's what a vacuum tube looks like. When I was a kid, I used to take all the vacuum tubes every year and go to the local hardware store and test out which ones were weak and which ones were burned out to keep my television going. It's actually my parents' television, but never mind. Uh, and so this goes on. Bell Laboratories, AT&T, uh, becomes the major developer of vacuum tubes. Uh, and uh, then realizes, well, these things ultimately burn out. You take a wire, you heat it red hot, and electrons pop out from the Crookes tube days, and they go over to a plate. And there's a little fine mesh in between where the electrons are coming out of the hot wire and this plate. And by changing the voltage very slightly in this little grid, you can modulate the current that goes across. And so little tiny signals on the grid actually make an amplifier. That's the way the vacuum tube works, but they burn out because it's a red hot filament. So the people at Bell Labs said, we got to get something better than that. There's a fellow by the name of Bill Shockley who comes to Bell Labs and he wants to work with the first industrial scientist um, uh, in the US to get a Nobel Prize and uh, the second one, I think Haber was the first one. Uh, the second uh, was Davison and Davison Germer fame. But Shockley says, I want to work with the great Davison. But he said, they say, management says, that's good. You want to work on vacuum tubes? but we want you to think about working on a solid state vacuum tube, a little condensed version of this. So he assembles a team and there are a whole bunch of other people working on this and um, uh, the combination of Shockley, Bardeen and Bertin actually got a Nobel Prize for the invention of the transistor. It wasn't a quick thing. It took Bell Labs about 10 years to drive this one home. 10 years of pretty concerted effort. Now I just have to tell you a little story. Uh, Bardeen and Shockley were theoretical physicists. Bertin was the experimentalist. Why is Shockley at the bench pretending to be doing an experiment? <laughs> because he was the department head boss. <laughs> and if those of you who know about Shockley or know him personally, um, you will know about Shockley. Anyway, <laughs> he would insist that he gets most of the credit. So uh, that's a picture of the transistor. It's a picture. It's a really ugly looking thing. Only a mother can love that one. <laughs> and it doesn't look very practical, but the basic physics underlying it said you can make this small. And they knew that in the 1940s and 1930s. Very soon afterwards, I think it was Fairchild um, or Texas Entrance, I forget which, so please, if there's anyone there, uh, forgive me. Uh, the integrated circuit was invented. This was the first integrated circuit, a really gloppy, ugly mess. But as you know the history, this rapidly developed. So now you have perhaps 10 billion transistors on a single chip, maybe two centimeters by two centimeters. Other fantastic inventions, optical fibers that can send far more uh, information than telephone lines. Wireless communications, another thing pioneered by Bell Laboratories, these things transformed the world, not only the developed world, but the developing world. The very first piece of electronics people buy in sub-Saharan Africa is a cell phone. So, and it helps in their business, it helps in their family, it helps everywhere. <clears throat> Let me tell you about another great innovation, uh, the automobile. Henry Ford didn't invent the automobile. He didn't invent the internal combustion engine. He didn't invent the assembly line. 
He improved upon the assembly line. And his first two companies did not fare well. Um, and the first company, his 1903 company, began to work. He has a lawyer. His lawyer asks the president of Michigan Savings Bank, uh, should I invest in this company? And, and the president of Michigan Savings says, the horse is here to stay. But the automobile is only a novelty, a fad. Well, his lawyer didn't listen, invested $5,000, and sold for $12.5 million. But remember, this is like 100 years ago, where you know, money was real and you get to keep what you made. <laughs> um, so I don't get to say stuff like that in Washington. <laughs> so now, let me address another question. Does the failure of an innovative company prove that the technology is a failure? And if you look at the technology of the airplane, if you look at the technology of phone companies, there were a bunch of other phone companies of all sorts of things, uh, you realize that, no, it doesn't mean that. In 1917, there were 127 U.S. manufacturers. There was a shakeout, a consolidation. By 1947, there were only 12. By the 1960s, there was only three. And this is a picture of a Packard. Most of you don't even know what a Packard or a Nash or a Studebaker are. But those are ones of 100 automobile companies that just completely failed. So one of the things you have to remember in any technology, any new technology, is a company found on a new technology, there will be a shakeout and a consolidation. All right. Now, the transition from horse to automobile was one of the most rapid transitions that the world has seen, given all the other infrastructure you needed, the better quality roads, the fuel distribution, you name it. And so here you see pictures of New York in the 1890s. It's all horses and pedestrians. Detroit, 1920, no horses. A few electric streetcars, which were soon to go the way of horses, and all automobiles. This is a very fast transition. You could say, well, that was easy. It was a superior technology. No, there were a lot of naysayers in this one as well. But there's something you should know. The transition to automobiles was hastened by a serious pollution problem. What was the pollution problem? In New York, Manhattan, and Brooklyn in 1880, there were 160,000 horses. They were producing three to four million pounds of horse manure a day and 40 gallons of urine a day. It would, the horse manure was piling up in every vacant lot, one story high. The uh, fertilizer market was long since saturated. <laughs> and it was just piling up, and it was reeking. It was, it was so much strewn on the streets that young entrepreneurs, kids, would take these brooms. And the, for well-to-do pedestrians, they'd sweep a path and get a tip so they could walk across the street without stepping uh, ankle-deep in horse manure. Okay? So we have another pollution problem. At least many of us recognize this. And it has to do with uh, the changing environment. This is a temperature record of uh, four independent studies of something that happened uh, between uh, 1800 and 2010. And it's the world average temperature, slowly peeing around very, very noisy early data. This is direct thermometer measurements of temperature corrected for all sorts of things. And, um, I forgot to turn off my cell phone. <laughs> you know, I used to have to keep it on, you know, President Mike Cole. <laughs> so anyway, 
So, uh, so in any case, uh, uh, most of this uh, change occurred very recently, really in the last 30 years, all right, if you look at this record. And so what has been changing in the last 30 years? Um, well, there's a few things. Number one, we're seeing a lot of heat waves. For those of you who don't remember, there was an August 2003 heat wave in Europe, and uh, over 50,000 people died in that heat wave, mostly because Europe didn't have air conditioning. And it was anomalously high for an extended period of time in August, and older people, and you know, everyone goes on vacation, and so a lot of older people who weren't on vacation got trapped in their apartments and simply died. In Moscow, a couple years later, 15,000 people died in a heat wave in Moscow and south of Moscow. What else has been happening? Well, this is some data uh, recorded by a reinsurance company. Those are companies that insure insurance companies in case there's a major catastrophe, like a major earthquake or a major flood or things of that nature. And again, the time scale is 1980 to 2011 in that 30, 32 year period where most of the temperature rise. And what you see, geological events, that's the purple down at the bottom. It's pretty noisy. Um, these are the number of events. Uh, doesn't seem to be a trend. But if you look at storms, if you look at floods, if you look at stream drought and forest fires, there seems to be a trend. It's increasing and it's increasing nonlinearly. All right? So just, you know, now climate models happen to predict a lot of the stuff is going to happen, but let's just step back a little and say this, this is happening, and it was coincident with the change in temperatures. Another thing is, what are the insured losses? Actually, the majority of insured losses are in the U.S. because we're the richest country. Insured losses and uninsured losses. The uninsured losses are the taller bars, the light blue bars. And um, then, unmistakably, you see this trend line. Uh, it's on a wrinkly screen, but it's, again, going up. And it starts, uh, again, averaging over this very noisy data, but it starts here at about $40 billion a year going to about $170 billion a year, again, rising at least quadratically. And the other thing is I believe that these losses are underestimated. They're, these are kind of direct losses as the event happens. And for, let me give you one example of a loss that is not accounted for. Flood insurance, either on seacoasts or in flooded areas and major rivers, in the US and around the world, uh, there's a feeling that the premium should pay for the losses in flood insurance. And this is a plot from FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, from again, 80 to 2010. And you see that when you see bars going above zero, that means you got a little deficit, and then the insurance has come down, you know, the premiums pay for that, and a little other bump, and the premiums pay for that. It looks okay until Katrina. And when Katrina happened, the debt rose to $18 billion. And the interest on $18 billion could never be recouped from premiums. And what most people don't understand is that the insurance companies are not taking a hosing. The federal government is paying for this loss. The federal government is not only the backstop, the insurance companies are actually a pass-through. Okay, in order to make insurance in major rivers and especially in seacoast low-lying areas, quote, affordable, the federal government backstops this. And this was before Hurricane Sandy. 
And so the insurance, we will never recover from Katrina, Sandy, Irene. The taxpayers will pay for this as part of our debt structure now. Okay. A few other things you should realize. The U.S. has spent roughly $400 billion on foreign oil last year and a lot more billions to keep shipping loans open. And then you may ask yourself, well, that's all fine and good, but you know, after all, the demand for oil and natural gas is going up dramatically. That's a finite resource. Surely they're going to run out, and that's going to force people to transition to some other solution. So I want to quote one of my favorite authors. And this person, two of my favorite authors, and they, this, these people said, our ability to find and extract fossil fuels continues to improve, and economically recoverable reserves around the world are likely to keep pace with the rising demand for decades. Uh, <laughs> one of my favorite authors. And, uh, and so, so the, the issue, it could be 30 years, it could be 40 years, it could be 50 years, it could be 100 years. We don't really know. People get very good at finding oil, not only finding it, but extracting more and more out of the ground. Routinely, we get 50% of the oil in the ground out of the ground. 50 years ago, we'd get 5%. Okay? So it's getting better. However, I should remind you, the Stone Age did not end because we ran out of stones. Uh, now, what is left unsaid, which we said in that article, was we transitioned to better solutions. And so this is what uh, this is about. And what are the better solutions? Well, I'm going to talk a little bit about energy efficiency and clean energy sources. Not clean energy sources that will cost more, but it's worth it, or the full cost of fossil energy has not been embedded, and if you add that, it will be cheaper. It's going to be cheaper within a decade, for sure, in two decades, even without a price on carbon, I think. How, okay, so let me go to energy efficiency first. So let me tell you a story about refrigerators. This in the olden days, in 1940, that was the, a, what an electric refrigerator looked like. The cooling coils were used to be a block of ice. And, and then things got better and better. They made it to frost-free refrigerators. What does frost-free mean? It blows hot air into the freezer, melts things, that little veneer of frost, drips water out, and then cools it down again. Now, that makes it less efficient. So the efficiency of refrigerators from 40s to 50s to 60s to 70s were just going down, 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 and the refrigerators were getting bigger, bigger, bigger. Okay. So then, in 1975, California passed the first refrigerator standard, and then what happened? The efficiency just started zooming up. It zoomed up so rapidly that today's refrigerators are 22% bigger than the first, the refrigerators of 1975. I'm not comparing to the 1940s. I'm comparing just before standards. They cost three times less to own and operate than in 1975. They use less energy, far less energy, uh, even though they're bigger than the 1975 refrigerators. But then you say, ah, but it comes in a cost. They cost more money. So my colleagues and I, me and a few others at LBNL, did a two-year study and gathered lots of data, both in Europe and in the uh, US. Uh, the article hasn't come out yet. But this is refrigerator. The open units are before standards. And the closed units are after standards. The blue curve 
are the cost of buying the refrigerator and the cost of operating the refrigerator based on real energy prices in the US. Okay, not consumer price index. This is the cost of the purchase of the refrigerator. The prediction it would shoot the cost of the purchase of the refrigerator way up. But so wait a minute, it wasn't going up. In fact, it might have been going down. And if you look at more detail at that, what you find coincident with the standards, there's a little semi-bump. And then manufacturers got really smart, really fast, and it went back on the same learning curve. Learning curve means you double the amount of refrigerator ship, you get better manufacturing, it gets cheaper. You double again, it gets cheaper by a certain same fraction, and so on and so forth. Every time a new standard starts, there's a little blip, a little bit, but you actually stay on the same learning curve. But you notice, well, what's happening down here? It seems to be you know, going a little faster. We looked at four appliances. We looked at room air conditioners, before and after standards. Oops, shortly after standards started, price started going down faster than before the standards. Huh? It's just data. Okay? This open circle was an open parameter fit. If, if you can find two slopes fit better than one fit two slopes, and where's the inflection point? Okay, so we're, we're not biasing because you could have drawn a straight line and it could have gone here. And so, you know, this is the way physicists analyze data. They don't come in with a preconceived notion. They just say, let the data talk to you. That was room air conditioners. Oops, ah, clothes washers, sorry about that. Uh, I'm gonna escape, I shouldn't have done that. But <laughs> uh, it's, uh, I, I should stick with my, given, given the, uh, uh, okay, I'm back. It, it was, uh, the price, of clothes washers, the price of room air conditions, the price of uh, central air conditioning, after standards started, went down faster. So we submitted this to Journal Science. Three economists reviewed it. One said, this is amazing, greatest thing since spice spread. The other two, paraphrased Lucy said, no matter what the data says, economists won't believe it. <laughs> <coughs> anyway, um, so it goes. <laughs> So uh, I'm going to be going, making more contributions to economics as a, now what happened? No, I'm, I'm still good. Uh, trucks, long haul trucks. 20% of our energy in transportation goes to long haul trucks of this size. And they get streamlined very rapidly. This is a calculation done with a high performance computing to look at the very complex turbulent flows and laminar flows around trucks to make it better. Here's another thing, more recently, we did similar calculations for the bottoms of trucks, this little plastic inserts that snap onto the bottom of trucks, and if you put little pieces of plastic here and here, and maybe on the side, you can further reduce the drag on a truck going at highway speeds by 10, five to 10%. The cost, about $1,000 if you make a bulk order, snaps in. What does it cost if you make a 10% savings? It's about $10,000 a year. Okay. So we're hoping that as these things get known, this, this will uh, be used as rapidly as the cowlings on the top of trucks. That was a two or three year transition. Uh, and so again, this is free money. Uh, another thing about energy efficiency, but it's, a, it's a, a different sort of thing. This is a Cummings diesel engine. 
um, with one of their heavier pickup trucks. They wanted a fuel-efficient engine. They wanted a low uh, NOx engine, a low polluting engine. Uh, this engine was designed with a mixture of supercomputers. This is a supercomputer a simulation of the complex burning processes where they're following about 500 chemical reactions way out of equilibrium in the piston of a diesel engine. And it was these, the parameters were validated in a laser diagnostic of a diesel cylinder in a laboratory. So working back and forth and refining this simulation, they were able to design a new diesel engine and optimize it on a computer. They built one prototype. It worked according to design, and they just went into production. So this is something that we can use to uh, reestablish ourselves, if you will, in industrial manufacturing because of the mixture of science and high-performance computing with industry. We're also pushing very hard in the Department of Energy to uh, make electric vehicles, either plug-in hybrids or purely electric vehicles, much less expensive. What is much less expensive? Much less expensive to own means 10 or maybe 15 years from today, the average car may get 40, 45 miles to a gallon, internal combustion engine car. Based on the fuel differential that we, you know, of today, just today, not the escalating difference, um, we want the payback period for a five-passenger car to be um, five years or less. So that means you should be able to buy a Nissan Leaf-type car or Chevy Volt-type car for about $22,000. And then you're, you're going to be even with an internal combustion engine car without subsidy. It's all without subsidy. Okay? So that's a goal. You have to do everything, especially the advanced batteries, but lighter weighting, better electrical motor systems, structural components, everything. Uh, but a lot of this stuff, actually, the structural components, the lighter weighting, uh, will also be useful to make internal combustion engine cars more efficient. All right, so let me turn very quickly to a clean energy sources. Um, wind has made great progress. Uh, they're getting more and more efficient. There's a theoretical limit for wind. Uh, if you capture, if there's a, a momentum, a hunk of mass of air coming at the turbine. Uh, it turns out there's a, a, a limit that's called the Betz limit, and it's about 59% if a cylinder of air has to pass through the turbine. Uh, these guys are getting to be about 50% efficient. So they're getting close to theoretical, that, that calculation. They're getting better by going taller. Taller means breezier, you know, the higher you go, there's less drag. Uh, and so these now uh, are going to 100 meter heights on land and even higher in the ocean. These are getting pretty big. Uh, how big is pretty big? Well, the largest diameter uh, turbines are uh, 126 meters. How does that compare to other sizes you know about? 126 meters, the Wright Brothers' first flight was 37 meters. The biggest airplane, commercial airplane in the sky now is 80 meters wing tip to wing tip, the 380 Airbus. So uh, it, uh, things like this now dwarf the 380. So they're getting bigger. They're getting more efficient. Uh, in this uh, engineering, uh, uh, what was it called, uh, conference that just ended, the energy efficiency uh, workshop, uh, uh, there, were a lot of, uh, uh, there were a lot of presentations and discussions about electronics and power electronics. 
uh, we're uh, now beginning to have in prototype and in operation new electronics instead of using old 60 hertz style transformers invented by Tesla that would weigh uh, 70,000 pounds. Uh, you can now have operational in the last RPE summit, uh, bring in a suitcase in their car, a trunk that weighs 100 pounds, the same power capacity as this. Okay. And so this is coming along quite nicely. Uh, power electronics will be a big deal in the future. From anything to powering your computer uh, and your uh, phones to, to uh, all these other things, including the big transmission distribution system. Let me go to solar uh, energy. Uh, great progress there. In 2004, the price of solar, the fully installed price of utility-scale solar was uh, about $8 uh, installation plus components plus hookup plus land use. Uh, by 2010, it went to less than $4. Uh, and this is a Department of Energy plan in order to get this price down so that perhaps by the end of the day, 2020, the price will be a dollar a watt. A watt is a certain standard illumination of sunlight hitting the panel. And it, it translates into what's called the levelized cost of electricity. But the important thing to realize, it's dropped by a factor two. It's for sure going to drop by another factor two. The question is, well, drop by a factor of four. Somewhere between two and four, it goes everywhere. Uh, it really everywhere. Now, it turns out that right now, if you put solar on your rooftop or on the top of a Costco warehouse type building, the cost of the solar panels and the cost of the electronics are less than the cost of everything else. What's everything else? It's installation, it's licensing, it's inspection. Those are called soft costs. And so if you look at the German experience in residential solar, it costs a German household $2.50 per watt, again, standard illumination. So it doesn't matter whether you're in Germany or Alaska or in Phoenix. Uh, just, it costs $2.50 fully installed on a rooftop. It costs $5.50 on average in the United States. Why is that? It's because of the soft costs. It's because of the bureaucracies and the licensing, and some towns actually like to have this, like parking tickets, as added income. And so we in the Department of Energy were trying very hard to change that and to try to get the soft costs down to where German soft costs are. Okay? Consider why you need this. If you buy uh, a gas heater for your home, either or a tankless gas heater, okay, you don't need a county license, a county inspection. You just go and hire a qualified plumber they inspect it. The danger in a gas heater is actually far greater than the danger of a leaky roof. And if the roof leaks, that's something between you and your contractor who installed it. All right? Now, and you and your contractor if your roof falls down. Okay? But these things you know, can catch fire, carbon dioxide poisoning, all this other stuff. So we want to get it so that it's as big a deal to install a, a gas water heater as it is to install a solar. And that's what we mean about soft costs. And so uh, SunShot, which is a revitalized program for solar, uh, we've been able to get uh, some really three, four outstanding people that totally reinvigorated this program uh, with all the career people there. And these four people just transformed it. And they got the people there, the career people, to buy into it, and they really believe it. And the current leader of the SunShot program said, 
unlike physics where we can fundamentally figure out the upper limit for efficiency of solar cells, there's no limit for bureaucracy. <laughs> he speaks with real wisdom. Uh, um, now, you know, sometimes friends ask me, knowing what you know today, would you have agreed to be Secretary of Energy? And, um, and in hindsight, probably the best thing I did was to try to identify with others that I brought in uh, some really good people and to recruit these great people and then block and tackle for them. That simply is shorthand for saying hire great people, let them work, and keep the rest of the bureaucracy from dragging them down. And um, so here's some tangible accomplishments. Well, in the last four years, renewable energy deployment in the United States has doubled, and solar photovoltaic systems has gone up eightfold. We had an annual budget of $25 billion a year, but in addition to that, we were entrusted by Congress in the Recovery Act, another $36 billion, and additionally, we were managing a lot of the tax credit things that the Department of Treasury saw as another $30 billion. And let me tell you, with that budget, you have never can imagine how many friends you have. <laughs> I was a very popular guy, and I don't think it was because I was good looking. So <laughs> in any case, um, it was a lot of money entrusted, and overall, uh, it, we did reasonably well. Uh, and we were very proud, I'm very proud, and my colleagues, of uh, revamping a review process that brought a new level of expertise into the federal government that really wasn't seen before. We had a loan program that uh, they tried very much to tarnish the president and the Department of Energy. But overall, it invested in 35 clean projects, 60,000 jobs. A few of the victories is that the first national scale rooftop solar project to be put on warehouses, like the warehouses you fly over where you land in an airport, all that flat space, uh, to sell to utility companies, not at retail, but wholesale. And so that's off and running. And uh, largest wind farms and solar farms. And now, uh, having have this experience of four years where you're putting in these really big things and they seem to be working, um, uh, financiers like Warren Buffett are now saying, okay, we're going to buy this. You might only get 6 or 7% return on capital, but hey, it's a safe thing because it's got a safe power purchase agreement. And so uh, it's now what uh, the finance world that um, solar is now bankable. So conservative investment houses are saying we can, we can invest in this. We think that uh, greater than 90% of the loans will be paid back. And the, the, the thing is, now we're transitioning to an era where this is ending, and, and I think it should end. But just to get it started and to get this so you show that uh, renewable energy does work and is reliable, uh, it was important. Uh, I did a few things. Um, that weren't really in the purview of uh, the Secretary of Energy. For example, there was this oil explosion and spill, and I had made a suggestion in the first week that say, you know, the stuff was coming out of the, of the blowout prevention platform in the bottom of the Gulf of Mexico. BP was sending autonomous vehicles in there to squirt fluids to make sure the valves were closed, but they didn't have any way of knowing that those hydraulic valves were closed. So for two days, they kept on squirting more hydraulics in to hope that they were fully closed. There was no instrumentation that could tell whether the valves were closed, not only in this one, but on no blowout prevention platform. Wow. 
So, <laughs> uh, you know, nothing like landing gear down and locked. And um, I, another side, I was, you know, talking to a CEO of a major oil company who was trying to say, no, that BP, they're outliers, we're, we're safe. He said, but they were using a blowout prevention platform, Cameron, which is a major one, there's only two major companies, you use the same one. And, and say, but we know when the valves are closed, we can tell. He says, you can't tell them one mile deep in the bottom of the ocean. Never mind. So I made the suggestion that you can use gamma rays and have a detector in the back and it goes through a couple of inches of steel. BP made fun of it. But after two days, the BP engineer said, you know, he may be right. They used it and found that they were partially closed. So then after that, the president says, Chu, get down there and stop the leak. <laughs> and then because of that, after Fukushima happens, Chu. You know, I was, going to, I was supposed to fly with him to Brazil on Air Force One. We were supposed to do some stuff, and okay. And, and then he said, can't go. You got to stay here and take care of this baby. I said, glad to. Uh, what? No, glad to, really. I like you still, but <laughs> anyway. No, but seriously, um, I wasn't talking directly to him. Uh, <laughs> But, but it was really, I, I wasn't talking directly to him on that one. He, he did say, chew, get down there or something. Uh, but um, but uh, again, uh, and it was just not me in Makano by a long shot. I assembled a small group of five others. But in back of our little team, uh, we also had a lot of scientists and engineers, particularly at uh, two or three of the national laboratories, that really were doing lots of background serious calculations for us as we required them. And it was actually pretty exciting times. Other thing, very proud of Advanced Research Projects Energy uh, <coughs> Agency for Energy. Model F, the DARPA, short-term, high risk. You swing for the fences. But if you swing for the fences looking for game-changing home runs, you might strike out more. We started this program expecting to strike out at least two-thirds of the time. So it's a new mode of operation. Because we don't want singles and ground, you know, infield singles. We want game-changing home runs. And so that's something we started. Another thing was the energy innovation hubs. That was modeled after our experiences in the Manhattan Project, also in MIT's now-called radiation laboratory that was developing radar, where they put engineers and scientists working in close proximity. And so there was no handoff. Uh, they were very focused on solving problems in a very, very fast way. And it was in that spirit that we said, okay, we, if we get innovation hubs going, perhaps we can get there quicker. Uh, there was another great model for this, and that, of course, was Bell Laboratories, where I spent nine years, and it seems like uh, a quarter of the Santa Barbara faculty in engineering spent some time, which is maybe why they're second only to MIT, but never mind that. Uh, Maybe MIT has more Bell Labs people. <laughs> but in any case, uh, 17 people who worked at Bell Laboratories went on to get Nobel Prizes. Now, that's astounding, because all those people were hired fresh out of PhD or from postdocs. They never were hired as stars. OK? And so there was something in the air at Bell Laboratories of those uh, of us who worked there uh, know about that. There were very animated discussions, which included what we call constructive confrontation. That means, I don't think you're right. I think you're wrong. I think this goes this way. And whether you're giving a seminar or talking informally or uh, you know, at tea or at lunch. But it was rarely taken personally. 
you know, it's not you think I'm stupid. No, it was just about the ideas. And, and it's the quality of the ideas and how they stood up to scrutiny that really mattered. In a couple year time period, a three year time period, these are, that was me at 32 looking like <laughs> the ultimate nerd. Uh, uh, but also Doug Osho was hired in that period, Dan Sui, Horst Storm, and Bob Wolf, and these were pictures of them later in life. But, uh, and this was five out of about 40 or 50 people hiring, the, uh, 30 people hiring in a five year, year, year period, okay? Go on to get Nobel Prizes. So it was the atmosphere that stimulated us. It wasn't that we were destined before we got there, I can guarantee you. So what was this culture of Bell Labs? It was this constructive confrontation. You sit around a table and you discuss ideas. And I think my proudest legacy is that we actually got that going in RPE. For those who've worked in RPE for the first three years, you know how, how it worked. And that showed we can actually do this in a federal bureaucracy. I could not do this at LBNL. You get little glimmers of this in universities, but we actually got it going full steam in a federal bureaucracy. And then Sunshot got it going full steam in an existing federal bureaucracy where most of the people were there. And so at least there's an existence proof that you can transform things. Now, and then one of the early founders of RPE, uh, David Danielson, is now the head, the assistant secretary uh, for energy efficiency, renewable energy. And just like the best way to move technology is to have the inventor or inventors go off and form the company or be part of the company, the best way to move a culture is to have those people go off and do another part of the company. And this is what's actually happening. That's what happened in Sunshot. Now it's happening in all of ERE. And, and quite candidly, I think that may be the only way. You move the people. And so it was described in a recent Forbes article, uh, what's happening in the rest of the energy and renewable energy is a quiet, clean energy innovation revolution at the Department of Energy. So now, these are ambitious goals. EV everywhere, $22,000 without subsidy, as good as a 10-year future car, RPE sunshot. But I kept on reminding the people of one thing, and that is the greater danger for most of us lies not in setting our aim too high and falling short, but in setting our aim too low and achieving our mark. Just like RPE, you know, don't invest in things that you know will pay off. Because if you do that, that will be the biggest failure you could have ever done. Now, <laughs> let me, uh, there's some parts of DC which were not as much fun. Uh, you're constantly at prey uh, of the press who want to make news by seeing if they can trip you up or play gotcha or twist words and things like that. And so you have to deal with that. That's also true sometimes in Congress. And so uh, shortly, six days after I announced my intention to step down as Secretary of Energy, this headline appears in a local paper. <laughs> <coughs> Hungover Energy Secretary wakes up next to solar panel. I'll read you an excerpt of the story. Sources have reported that following a long night of carousing in a series of D.C. watering holes, Secretary of Energy Stephen Chu awoke Thursday morning to find himself sleeping next to a giant solar panel he had met the previous evening. And it goes on to say, and he didn't even remember the manufacturer's name. <laughs> According to sources, Chu's encounter with the crystalline solar receptor was his most regrettable dalliance since 2009, when he was an extended fling with a 90-foot wind turbine nearly ended his marriage. So this hits the press, 
Pogan Ferris comes to me. Oh, my gosh, what are we going to do with this? Uh, I think we can. We've got to respond. We've got to respond today. So how do we respond? I just want everyone to know that my decision not to serve as the second term of Secretary of Energy has absolutely nothing to do with the allegations made in this week's edition of Onion. <laughs> While I'm not going to confirm or deny the charges specifically, <laughs> I will say that clean, renewable solar power is a growing source of U.S. jobs and is becoming more and more affordable. So it's no surprise that lots of Americans are falling in love with solar. <laughs> They would not let me put in the last little phrase, which is, regardless of your sexual preferences. <laughs> okay. So as you probably understand, I'm not giving a deeply technical talk. This is a very high altitude, 30,000 feet. But let me step back a little further at a higher altitude and remind you of a picture taken on uh, Apollo 8. That's the first mission that went orbited the moon in preparation for moon landing. The last of the four orbits, they turned the capsule earthward, and they took a picture of Earth uh, rising above a lunar landscape. And the astronaut who took this picture said, we came all this way to explore the moon. And the most important thing is we discovered the Earth. Now, since that time, we've discovered more and more compelling evidence that the Earth's climate is changing. And it's highly likely due to humans at least a major fraction of it is due to humans. And so I want you to notice something about this picture. Moon is not a nice place to live. The Earth looks pretty inviting at this height. And look around, there's nowhere else to go. So this planet we gotta take care of. Now I'm gonna play another movie. I know it's a little bit past time, but you know. Uh, and it, uh, it's something I just downloaded today. And if those of you have seen it, it's worth seeing again. It's Carl Sagan's The Pale Blue Dot. So here From this goes. distant vantage point, the Earth might not seem of any particular interest. But for us, it's different. Consider again that dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, Everyone you ever heard of, every human being who ever was, lived out their lives. The aggregate of our joy and suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on the mote of dust suspended in a sunbeam. The earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. Think of the rivers of blood spilled by all those generals and emperors so that in glory and triumph they could become the momentary masters of a fraction of a dot. Think of the endless cruelties visited by the inhabitants of one corner of this pixel on the scarcely distinguishable inhabitants of some other corner 
how frequent their misunderstandings, how eager they are to kill one another, how fervent their hatreds. Our posturings, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe are challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. The Earth is the only world known so far to harbor life. There is nowhere else, at least in the near future, to which our species could migrate. Visit? Yes. Settle? Not yet. Like it or not, for the moment, the Earth is where we make our stand. It has been said that astronomy is a humbling and character-building experience. There is perhaps no better demonstration of the folly of human conceits than this distant image of our tiny world. To me, it underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly with one another and to preserve and cherish the pale blue dot, the only home we've ever known. So that pale blue dot picture was even a more distant picture, one of the first explorers. It was, it was leaving past Pluto. Sagan convinced NASA to turn the capsule backward, the satellite backward, take a picture of Earth. And that was that little speck. So you'll have to read this. So, thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.